0: Lacerations around the eyeball scare me to death. Real malpractice is
1: never tried. It's settled. These eye cases, when they're obvious, it's not a problem. It's all about the subtleties. All the emergency physician
2: did was start the IVs and call in the general surgeon, and now
0: he's being sued as well. You do this to upset me, don't you?
1: What were the sources of error? Well, they screwed up the diagnosis.
2: Democracy is a tenuous form of government, and probably no way to run an adjudication system in a technical discipline.
0: Sands in prison.
2: Technology is not always the answer. Explain to me the reason for
0: patching.
1: It tells you which I was the problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You want to know the truth? Yeah, I do. You can't handle the truth.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Rick Buchanan with Greg Henry and Elvis Herbert. Hello, August 11th. You can see this is the August issue, and we're running painfully late, painfully late. But Uh, is the August
2: issue? Do not apologize.
1: We get a little time off. We get a little time off. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we got a lot to cover this issue. We're going to start off with a paper. A paper. We're going to summarize that paper, and we're going to have commentary on that paper. This paper is entitled. It's a long title. Bear with me. Epidemiologic study of closed emergency department malpractice claims. A national database of physician malpractice insurers. Got that? Anyway, it's basically about the PIAA database. That's the Physician Insurers Association of America. What that really stands for, Rick, is the Bedpan Mutuals of America. Yeah, these are insurance companies that are either owned by or operated by or run by doctors. They represent sixty percent of all doctors in the country are insured by one of these companies. So they have this big database, and this doctor, Doctor Terrence Brown. Is the lead author on this paper? He, at the time he wrote this, was at the Emergency Medicine Center at Johns Hopkins, and also the Center for Legal Medicine at Johns Hopkins. Did you know that there's a the Center for Legal yes, Medicine? Yes, center. there is. Yeah. There well, is. anyway, they had it. Sounds impressive. He's now at Good Samaritan Hospital in Phoenix. Right now, in August, he's probably 110. <laughs> he he, he wishes he was back in Baltimore.
2: Yeah. Understand, Rick. This study was actually funded by the government itself. So you as a
1: taxpayer have paid for this data. Jeez Louise, this is a 25-year study. And I think, honestly, to be very candid, that's the problem with this study. I understand. But But in any case...
0: Well, it's both its strength
1: and its weakness. Well, I think it's clearly more of its weakness (laughs) than its strength. (laughs) Yeah, because I want
2: to know what happened last year, 25 years ago. Exactly. The problem is, Mel... Whenever you're looking at malpractice claims, you've got to be looking at least five or six or seven years back only because by the time the case is closed, notice this is a closed
1: claim study. So this is 1985 to 2007 closed claims. They looked at a goodly number. They're adults 18 years or older during this period, so it's got no kids in it. I don't know why they didn't include the kids. There were 11,529 claims involving an emergency department somewhere in this thing. Not necessarily emergency physicians, but somewhere the ER got named or something happened there.
2: Well, what they're pointing out is in the study, most emergency department claims aren't just against the emergency physician. The majority of claims have two or three defendants. So it's hard to find just a one emergency department claim. And they did the right thing
1: here because this is the way it's mostly done. Only about 5.4%, give or take a hundredth of a percent, of the total number of claims were this subset that involved the emergency department in some way, which I thought was surprising. 5% of all the malpracticing is it focused on the emergency department. I thought it would have been substantially higher than that. But then again, and I don't want to have to reiterate this over and over and over, maybe in the last five years, it's different than that. We're talking about 20-some-year database here. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one of the problems. I want to know what's going on in the last five years of so turns. Come on now, buddy. Let's go back. Let's segregate that in same information that you did. You can get two studies out of yes. it. That's great. There you go. <laughs> That's you know? what,
2: there. You're talking. In all fairness to Terence, you don't know a closed claim. It's impossible to do closed claim studies on anything. It's got to be at least. Five years. All right, back.
1: fine. Give me some yeah. trends here. What's getting better? What's getting worse? But in any case, it's very interesting also. So, 5% of the claims were generated somehow in the emergency room. How many of those claims specifically involve the emergency physician? only 19%, which is also striking. And that's why I think more recent data has to show it's more than that. But anyway, they said 15% of them involved internists and 14% were involved family physicians. Orthopedists and general surgery was a little bit less. One of the take-home messages for sure in this paper, Greg, is you just have to have a broad look at anybody who's setting foot in that emergency department could be the cause of or a precipitant of a ER ER-related event. Well, let's also define the fact that Good plaintiff attorneys
2: only understand adding defendants, that is, if you in any way touch this case. And that's the point here. By ourselves, we aren't the only person who gets sued. And I think emergency physicians should understand they can get sucked into cases where they're very peripheral. I'm working on a case right now where the emergency doc. saw the patient for about 45 minutes before the general surgeon actually saw him. The emergency doc is sucked in at the same level as everybody else. And, you know, I hate to do this in front of Mel so early in the discussion, but all the emergency physician did was start the IVs and call in the general surgeon, and now he's being sued as well. I think it's mostly to get somebody to testify against the general surgeon. You do this to upset me, don't you? Yes, I do
1: that. What were the sources of error? Well... As you might anticipate, they screwed up the diagnosis. That was the most common one.
2: Rick, that's the problem with PIAA data. They have an insurance view of the world, and they have to put everything into a pigeonhole. So they say it's either failure to diagnose, failure to do this, failure to do that. Those aren't the real reasons in most cases, but they put it into a pigeonhole, and that's why I think it has limited applicability in deciding changes in physician behavior.
1: Well, no, I I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think when Terrence goes back and does this study again Mm -hmm. and segregates this in terms of the years, he would also try to tell us about the nature of the errors. I mean, what were they? Can you drill down a little bit? We had 15 subarachnoid hemorrhages. We had 14 of these. We had 25 of those. We had 50 of these. Here's the problem with that thinking. Because did they miss a subarachnoid
2: hemorrhage? How do you know that the real problem... The reason the emergency physician is involved is because he got bullied by the neurosurgeon on the phone into not doing the right thing. So I think that when you actually do these cases, and this isn't that huge a number of cases, there are real reasons which don't fall into a neat category. And I'm going to present some cases a little bit later on in this that you're going to be furious at. Well, you shouldn't have been sued for that. You know what? It's not simple.
1: Well, I guess we agree to disagree i believe that these could be categorized into chest pain headache and and help you out here kind of
2: yeah, thing yeah i disagree that disagree that you disagree yeah we disagree okay. on
1: this go ahead And unfortunately, this database did not allow them to drill down even a little bit and tell us, well, what part of the errors were related to the history, the physical, the testing, the interpretation of tests, whether you did or did not get a timely consult, those kinds of things. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of take-home here, except you ought to know how to make every diagnosis in Rosen.
0: So let me ask Greg a question on that then. So when you go through and you get sued and it's closed... Do they say you lost because of we paid out this much because of failure to diagnose, failure to treat, failure to do a CT scan? All in insurance summary?
2: companies do that.
0: What they do is at the end of the case, mm-hmm. there's four or five
2: pigeonholes they've got to stick it in. So they just pick one. And by the way, do you think anybody in administration at most of these insurance companies cares? What they know is on their form, they've got to block one of the four or five causes. That's why I think. That when I really want to drill down in a case, when I'm the defendant expert examining a case, you have to go a lot farther down than the sort of oh, you know, failure to do a test, failure to admit, failure to diagnose. That is the simplistic, that's the comic book version of what we do for a living. And don't for a minute think that that's going to change physician behavior. I agree with Rick that there are certain things you shouldn't do. And I'm going to present a couple of those cases too. But you have to look a lot deeper in a lot of these cases.
1: Well, you know, what this reflects to me is that these insurance companies don't really believe that your risk of malpractice suits can be reduced. Yes, I agree with that, Rick. <clears throat> because if they did, they would take this data and they would data mine it to say, here's the issues, doctor. And don't just tell me it's a failure to diagnose. That is, for me, absolutely worthless. Failure to. Absolutely worthless. What do you say? So you go to a doc and say, diagnose it
2: next time. That do better. Doesn't help. Do better. Yeah. <clears throat> right.
1: exactly. One of the things I thought was interesting, though, and this has been affirmed by at least two other papers that we've done looking at this no error was identified in about 20% of the cases, yet four percent of those cases basically had money paid out so this again affirms that it's not about whether you did or did not deserve to lose sometimes the jury says we got to get some money to this guy look at this thing this is a mess and so error does not necessarily have to be proven without a shadow of a doubt for you to lose a case rick democracy is a tenuous form of
2: government and probably no way to run an adjudication system in a technical discipline Rick, I want to point out also in this paper that the PIAA database has in it 11,500 claims involving ED only. But if you look at their total book of business, they're talking about 213,000 claims. Yeah, right. That's why it's 5%. This is a big number. But it's interesting, even with that, the entire indemnity payout. And for those of you who need a reminder on this, indemnity is what we pay the plaintiff. That's in most insurance companies, only about half of where the money goes. The money really goes in defense costs it was about 12.5 billion on 213,000 claims. Do the math on that. What it really means is malpractice is substantial, but it's not the huge part of medicine. It's the behaviors that it causes physicians to do that's the problem. It's not just what we actually pay the plaintiff.
1: So getting back to the fact that you don't have to prove you screwed up to have money change hands, which is clearly discouraging because, as you mentioned, this is not necessarily about truth. The other thing they pointed out is improper performance of a procedure. One in six cases, that was it. I'm surprised that it is the case, especially related to emergency department things. How many cases could be related to an improperly performed procedure? Maybe it's got something to do with, you know, you missed a tendon and a laceration or something like that. And failure to supervise or monitor was only 7% of the cases. Yet I would believe, frankly, that that would be a lot higher because I can see all of these cases where there is this person's vital signs kind of deteriorating you didn't catch it in time now you're playing catch-up kind of thing or the level of consciousness is going down or the vital signs of the nurse they got another set but they didn't tell you about it so this idea of a monitoring cases I would have thought would be much more of an issue
0: but that's more vague and it's harder to pick that up it's very simple when you put in a chest tube and you take out their heart or you put in a central line and (laughs) and you make them exsanguinate, that is pretty simple anybody can work out Something bad happened and you were doing something to make that bad thing happen. I would think yeah. they get picked up easily.
2: Yeah. And the toughest cases are those where the patient comes in in extremis anyway. And no matter what you're doing, the patient is going to die. Those cases, did the placement of the chest tube, did the line actually cause the problem? Those are where the cases
1: get much tougher. Under the umbrella of a failure to monitor is also failure to supervise. So this gets into... Your NPs, your PAs, your residents, your medical students, and all of those other cases. So, Mel, you should be across the table there saying, Oh, geez, i got to supervise
0: these people? Failure to supervise. It's only 7% of the time, so I'm good most of the time. <laughs> yeah, <a> but 93% <laughs> of the time, yeah, I'm good. But 6% of those were at your hospital, <laughs> Mel, so just understand that. We're going to
1: just play the odds. You know, yep. 7%, I can live with that kind of thing. By
2: uh, the way, the numbers haven't changed much as we go through where we're sued you know what? 40 years ago, we were talking about chest pain and acute MIs. Who that's at the top of the list
1: now. Yeah, it is from this 20-some-year-old database, but the fact of the matter is, is I want to know that In the last five years, MI is going up or down, or is it still a problem? Because frankly, Mel and I had the great debate about how do you evaluate uh, chest pain patients. (laughs) And, you know, the idea of doing one cardiac marker, I don't think people do that anymore. And I think keep people around and do serial this and serial that. I think our approach to them has changed substantially. And the ability to miss heart attacks, I think, has gone down. I think it has too, but I don't think we can have that data until we close the claims that are out there. Chest pain, however, was the diagnosis associated with the highest death rate. You know, when we screwed up, they died more. And it was also associated with the highest ratio of paid to the denominators that were suing you. They won proportionally more of those cases in the chest pain arena. Orthopedics and soft tissues, remain an issue. 8% of the cases. It's frequency there. It's not that the payouts are the
2: biggest, because they're not. But there's so damn many of them. Every time there's a laceration, think infection. Every time there's an orthopedic injury. And by the way, it's X-ray negative orthopedics, which is the problem. The strange Lisfranc injury, which on plain film doesn't show anything. The navicular bone, which doesn't show up on a plain X-ray. You know, when they come in with both bones of the forearm broken and going in different directions, it's never a problem. Never a problem.
1: Appendicitis or other abdominal or pelvic problems was the third most common item. Right. Again, every soul is now is having a CAT scan done. That was not done 25 years ago. So tell me what it is now, because we're over-testing these people, if anything. Rick, you're assuming
2: that the doing of a CAT scan would change the liability issues, and I will absolutely fight that. There are plenty of people who get a CAT scan today. First of all, the CAT scan is not a perfect test, and it's the timing of when you do it, and... It's when you bring these people back. So I'm interested to know that data as well, but I don't think that the CAT scan alone, I've got plenty of cases where CAT scans were done, and there's a lawsuit going. So we need to think about this a little bit. Technology is not always the answer to these
1: problems. My only quest was, let's look at the evolution of these claims. But in any case, here's the stuff that I think is particularly cool. Of the closed claims, 1% was a jury verdict for the patient. 1%. Holy smoky. 1%. 6% were jury verdicts for the doctor. So 1 out of 7, 14% is going to go against you. I'll take those odds most of the time. Right. So when you go to a jury, good chances are you're going to win, but they represent a tiny fraction of the claims because 29% of the time when money changes hands is because of a settlement. Yeah, but understand, Rick, we just finished a case
2: which we won hands down not a penny paid to the plaintiff, $139,000 in costs. So it's not just whether you lost to a jury. It's how much money you had to spend on the trip to get there. And that's gone up. I've watched that, the
1: evolution. Well, we have some numbers about that. Oh, yes. Doctor. 64% there was no payment. No. You should feel good about that. Two-thirds of the cases no payment. 29%, yes, they settled out of court. Those that went to court, you'll win the vast majority of those, and they were a very, very small percentage. That's right, because real
2: malpractice is never tried. It's settled. And if you look at the numbers, this has been consistent. Less than one out of ten malpractice cases is tried in front of a jury, and that's exactly what this says. What it's suggesting here is maybe 7%. Instead of 10%, but something like that is tried in front of the jury. Somebody else settles it in another way. And I think that's the way this thing has been for the last 25 years. How
0: different do you think those numbers would be then? The fact that we rarely lose in front of a jury. How different would it be if the insurance companies said, no, we're going to try every one? We're not settling ever again. Do you think, just in your sort of your gestalt, would that number go way up? Would we lose a lot more in front of a jury? There's certainly that risk that goes up. And again, the insurance company is looking at the
2: cost of the defense because again it's not what they pay the plaintiff that's an element of it but their defense costs are the real claims let me say that what would change this dramatically if you had to have one thing to change the outcome it would be that the loser has to pay the winners expenses that would change this thing almost nothing would go to trial real stuff would get settled bad stuff, they drop because if the plaintiff actually had to pay the physician's defense costs, it would disappear overnight. And isn't that called
0: contingency fees? Or something no, like that?
2: contingency is different. Contingency is that the, the oh, plaintiff's okay. lawyer takes a percentage of the win. And right now in the state of Ohio, for example, I was just involved in a situation in Ohio, it's 40% after, after expenses. So if you got a million-dollar verdict and the expenses were $100,000 he gets 40%
1: of the after expenses take. The other side of that equation is, however, poor people would never be able to sue anybody if that was the case because they say, I'm sorry, you lost, you have to pay $100,000 because of the doctors. Well, let me give you a counter to that. I see poor people every day.
2: It's not that poor people can't get health care. Then the lawyers could do something called pro bono care. They could actually take the cases, just like you and I do, and they could do it out of the goodness of their hearts.
1: And the expert witnesses—they're going to also do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Well, you know, a lot of us do, Rick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody I know—they're very reluctant to tell you what they charge because, frankly, the numbers are pretty aggressive. Yep. Anyway, let's move on a little bit. Most claims do not involve trivial situations, and as a matter of fact, a third of the people died. So there's often a belief that, ah, this is all just kind of like uh, minor stuff, and they're just trying to get a few bucks. Eighty percent of these claims involve serious or permanent injuries, and claims that were trivial or where they focused on emotional reactions, they noted them to be settled for low dollar amounts, and they generally lose more often than the rest of the claims that are filed. So this idea of trivial lawsuits, it's hard to make the case here when they're saying 80 percent either died or had serious permanent injuries. Right. The high watermark of the nastiness in medical malpractice was in 1993. They had the most claims, and they had the most payouts then. And since then, things have gotten a lot better. Well, I actually was
2: at the insurance meetings about two months ago, and there is no question that in more than half the states of the United States, there has been a significant decrease in the last five years in the number of cases that are brought forward. Those, if you look at emergency medicine cases only... If you look at the states that have shifted their, what they call the standard that you have to meet, Georgia went to essentially a willful and wanton Mm -hmm. kind of standard. Texas went to a willful and wanton standard. As soon as that happens against emergency physicians, those numbers plummet Mm -hmm. because they've got to prove to a jury, 12 people picked off the voters' rolls, that the emergency physician acted not just below the usual and customary standard but at a level which was truly negligent, something which was almost purposeful. When that happens, cases just drop like a stone.
0: That is nice to know. So you always wonder with these people pushing reform, which parts of the reform actually work. That one so that one seems to work. And what about caps on pain and suffering like we have in California? Well, there's no question that that works. What it does is it drops the total number of dollars. But that takes away the incentive of a lawyer to... Go off to cases, I would assume. Well, to some extent, it's
2: rats, cheese, money, lawyers. I mean, these things all sort of fit together in a nice picture. No money, no lawyers. But if you look at the way the caps have gone, there's been states which have rejected the caps or changed the caps. And to some extent, in my egalitarian mode, I think the caps do have a problem. Because why in the world should we set an arbitrary number on some of these things. Of course I have also this problem, which is if I only charged you a hundred bucks for the service, why can you sue me for a billion? Why don't we limit it to a hundred times what I charged you for the service? I mean there ought to be some relationship between the cost of the product and the liability that's going to be paid off the
1: other end. Well, next month, we're going to talk about some of the pros and cons of CAPS, and so we'll save that for then. Just to put this in perspective, things were going pretty good there in terms of payouts from 1993 forward. They were kind of level until 2006 and 2007. big increase in those two years. For reference, the average indemnity payout when adjusted for inflation, went from $115,000 in 1986 to $384,000 in 2007. So it went up. But in fairness,
2: a lot of the crap cases went away. So the ones that were left to be tried, as was pointed out earlier, were those of significant damage and death cases. And a lot of the lower stuff went away. Again, when I look at the total amounts of money spent here, it's real. But at the federal government level, 12 billion dollars isn't even a rounding error anymore for the federal government. It's not a rounding error. It's what it does to behavior of physicians, which I believe is the problem, but nobody asked me. You remember when
1: we did the paper that was done in Health Affairs that looked at estimating the cost of malpractice in terms of physician behavior? Mm and how much it added to the 2 bill. to 10%. Yeah, yep. It was somewhere, yeah, it was in that neighborhood. 10% would be, I think... Yeah, they
0: said 2 to 10% and it keeps getting quoted as 2% for people who say it doesn't mean <laughs> anything and 10% for those it does. And we talked about it a lot and I said, I think it's 50% because yeah, they yeah. were full of it. Yeah, because they are full of it, but right. But if
1: you split the difference, basically you're talking about 6 or 7% maybe is the number. So it's not as bad as everybody's beating their chest and would like to believe, frankly. And you know I, what? And I, I could buy I a lot of to stuff measure. for 5% of
0: yeah, the healthcare budget. bill. of
2: the United <laughs> States, by the way, the comment about cost to defend claims what they 're saying in this is it went from twelve thousand six hundred bucks a claim to thirty thousand that has nothing to do with cases which are actually adjudicated. This is every piece of paper that comes in, including those that were misnamed. It includes those that can be processed with a letter because if you actually look at anything that 's actually started and where they start to do depositions. That number has exploded. Some of that's the cost of experts, but just paying lawyers to show up at depositions and that sort of thing, it's become ridiculous. I've been in rooms where there's 15 attorneys all being paid so much per hour to
1: listen to the process go on. This has all gone crazy. It's a non-productive society. Well, if you want to put a number on what you're talking about, of 7,200 claims where no money was paid out, it cost $85 million to defend those claims. So it all went to the lawyers and the expert witnesses, and the patients didn't get one stinking nickel. Not a doubt. I think that one of the insurers in Michigan did
2: a good study a few years ago and basically said this, of every dollar they take in, about 18 cents will eventually go to a patient. Everything else is the cost of doing business. Either the plaintiff's attorney, the defense attorney, the experts, the accountants, all these people take their share of this thing. We would have a much more efficient system if we had a panel of decent docs who just looked at it and said, this is what you get. Patients would get more money than they get now, and all these other people would have to get real
1: jobs All right, let's get to the conclusion here, Doc. Are you ready? Yeah, okay. Get me. The number of claims, which is currently about half of what they were in 1992, it's clear. They're going down dramatically. And the number of paid claims has decreased over time, with the absolute number of paid claims in 2007 being the lowest since the database began in 1985. So that's the trend here. Many, many fewer cases and the amount of being paid out proportionally is smaller. So that's good news, yes? That's good. This we is good that. news. If this is good that. news. Not if you're a lawyer. It's good for us. So the take-home <laughs> messages. The take-home messages... My take home message is we would have learned a heck of a lot more from this if it had been segregated into some time frames. But the idea that you mentioned, Greg, that multiple people need to be looked at, it's not just at the ER doctors, it's all of these other doctors, it's at the ER processes, it's the nurses, the clerks, it's your policy procedure. All of those things are the source of this. And I think the good news is that's clear that there's a marked decrease in the number of claims and money paid out. I think the other thing that's take home from this is physicians always are very indignant
2: about being sued they always have the same comment that well i don't get a real jury of my peers the truth of the matter is when the emergency doctor shows up in court they win six out of seven times the decision goes for the doc i think most people in the country would like to think that the doc tried And most people understand that everybody's going to die and there's going to be no guarantees in the outcome. And so this ought to be just a little bit reassuring to our colleagues that the system, as bad as it is, you know, I would prefer a New Zealand type system of resolving these claims. But you know what? We don't do a bad job. And if you put together a good team with good attorneys and good experts, your chances of prevailing are quite good.
0: Yeah, it makes me feel better looking at these numbers. It's definitely in our favor. But there's still the psychological problem of if you're named, you've lost thing. That's always right. Fun. But the number of times they're getting named is going down, so I feel better about it. Yep. It's getting safer out there, ladies and gentlemen. It's getting safer. I think it's because the old guys are retiring. So. <laughs> what? What? And, the, are you and, and, what? and the young guys that order every test known to man yes.
1: are out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, so let's get off of this topic and let's get on to some clinical medicine. Over the last months, we've done musculoskeletal, we've done abdominal pain, chest pain, all those kinds of things. So we're going to focus a little bit on eye, ear, nose, and throat. Eye, ear, nose, and throat. We're going to hit what we think to be some of the risk-related highlights here.
0: And Melvis is going to lead off. Yeah, so let's go through these notes here. And I'm going to pepper Greg with lots of questions here. So let's talk about the eyes. And so I assume, Greg, tell me if I'm wrong, that the eyeball is important. And if I do something and you can't see, that I'm probably going to get in trouble from a lawyer and I'll probably go for a lot of money. I think all of that's true, but I think there are things
2: which help the emergency doctor. Number one, we can measure your visual acuity. It's not hard. Number two, the eyeball was nicely put in a socket, which is protected on all sides. The number of eyeball injuries we see, it's not like chest pain. If you looked at the number of cases you saw this week, serious eye
1: injuries versus the number of patients with chest pain, it's low. But it's not just injuries. We're talking about my eye's irritated. I think i got something in my eye. But the majority
2: of those, it's like children with coughs and runny noses. Could there be an early meningitis in there? Yes, but you know what? The total number is relatively small. Here's the other thing. Most emergency doctors, when they have an eye problem of significance... Know when to get help. They know when to call opthy. They know when to say, I don't understand this. Someone came in and is suddenly blind in their eye. I mean, we can go down the usual differential steps, but if you look in there and there's blood inside that eyeball, what are you going to do? Call an ophthalmologist. Exactly right. <laughs> We're not the ones who get sued on most of those cases. Now, let me just tell you about a case I had a few years ago. This is the kind of you get sued for. A guy is at home working in his garage, a home handyman. He's been heating up a muffler, and he's pounding it with a steel hammer. This is not going to end, well. And he comes in and says, I think I scratched my eye. Mm-hmm. And the emergency doc said, yeah, there's a scratch on that eye. And of course, what happened, Well, not Half the muffler is in the back of his well, eye. <laughs> it's not half the muffler, but it's enough that when I hear the term hammer-pounding steel sudden eye pain. To me, that's an automatic. It's an automatic. I wouldn't, depending on my examination, take my examination. I'd shoot the damn film and see if I could find that spec. The other thing is, when you put the dye in and there's fluid running, as far as I'm concerned, they're going to the university to have one of the ophthalmologists take a look. It's because basically on those kinds of issues, we've become casual on belly pain and chest pain. We're really not as casual about penetrating eye stuff. And if I look at my 2,000 cases over my career, I've got like three eye cases.
1: You know, I don't have 2,000 cases, but I have two eye cases. So you just happen to be fortunate. And I think that these eye cases, when they're obvious, it's not a problem. It's all about the subtleties. And then you need to know the biz buzz of hammering, grinding, and an interactive foreign buddies. If you don't know that biz buzz, then you're going to miss this case and right. you may get unlucky and you're going to have that Midas muffler in the guy's eyeball that is going to cause a problem. I think that philosophically... In these gray zone cases where you feel uncomfortable, we should have a low threshold for calling ophthalmology because you only got two eyes. It's kind of considered a big deal. And I have no sympathy for these guys because they don't work nights and they make lots of money. And I think that doctors really should not feel bad in calling these people when they don't feel comfortable with the case. Let's give the listeners a rule.
2: My rule is that when the one-eyed patient comes in, they've (laughs) lost their vision from some other reason and they've got any discussion about the good eye, just call ophthalmology just to discuss the case. It's like there's no 15-year-old boy with a pain in his testicle that I don't call urology on. I'm just going to run by the findings and talk about it. Why? Because the story is so suggestive. I want to talk about this issue again. One-eyed people, of course the great Roman phrase is, the one-eyed man is king in the land of the blind. (laughs)
0: But for most of us, one eye is really important. So first point would be, if we've got any question, we'll call the ophthalmologist. So let's talk about chemical injuries, and we'll talk about a couple of other things here as well. But in chemical injuries, somebody comes in, they splash some alkali in their eye, they're acid in their eye. You're gonna irrigate that out you're going to keep irrigating it out until that pH gets into a normal range. What we have on our notes here is the question of, should I check their visual acuity now? Or should I just, as soon as I get there, start pouring fluid in? Does it make a difference from a medical legal point of view that you did the visual acuity now and afterwards? And I, how do we do
2: this? Well, I'll just tell you, I have never spoken to anybody who does these kinds of cases and had anybody sued based on when they did the visual acuity in that case. If what they did was put in an anesthetic and irrigated the eye, how are you going to make the case that an early visual acuity is better than a late visual acuity?
1: Well, the point I'm trying to make is... You ought not even consider it. If somebody comes in and says, I got something in my eye that needs to be washed out right away, the clock's running, they might have done something at home. But I think that in terms of what you're expected to do, you're expected to treat it and not delay. And so you put the guy in front of the eye chart, can you read the big E dot? You know, that's ridiculous. It's a total waste of time. And to the extent that that has the potential to harm this patient, I think that you ought not do it. After you wash out that eye, you can do a visual acuity till the cows come. So he got yeah. the
0: line in his eye, and you're saying, "Can you read the top line?" Yes, I can. And then, oh, let's just go back. Oh, now I can't read it. And All you right. could actually trend it over time <laughs> as it's well, more than getting it. destroyed. <laughs> Wait a second. My
2: experience with people who have splashed serious chemicals in their eye is they're unhappy campers.
1: They're not there casually looking at the eye chart. They're sort of screaming in pain. Oh, no, no. The policy is we have to do the visual acuity (laughs) first, you know, stand behind this line. I'm sorry. I know there's probably a little piece of sand in there kind of thing. Well, I'd be interested, Rick. While
2: we're talking about this, we might as well get it out. The penetrating injury I talked about. What have you seen
1: as legal cases? And I'll be happy to give you my other two. Well I'm at you, but I was list them as they came up All actually right. actually. All uh, right.
0: we we're, can so we're that. not exactly quite there yet. So we irrigate these eyes out with these chemical splashes. Do it fast, do it often, do it copious Normal saline versus tap water, I don't think there's any difference between those two. And particularly for the alkali ones, you want to keep checking that pH until you get it into a normal range and then check it again and lift their lid up and get that crap from underneath the By the way, leads. the
2: pH checking, I think, is probably a little overdone. Just run a lot of water in, and I guess I've never seen it that after two liters the
0: pH is abnormal. Maybe you have. I haven't. Well, the bigger problem I find is that people irrigate the eye, but they don't. Invert the lid and double invert the lid, and there's a piece of chunk of that lye and stuff that's up there. you got to get in there and well, irrigate but, that all out. But that's part of the deal. Somebody
2: who irrigates has to understand you can roll that lid, get under there, but I don't think checking
0: the pH, the pH is... Of it, I makes just don't think it makes me feel better any after difference. I've all done it, and I go, and the pH is... In the yeah, wall. I want to Thank see you. the paper <laughs> on that. I just want to see the literature. Yeah, it, probably yeah. doesn't, it just makes me feel better.
1: Yeah. yeah, I would agree. It is considered by many to be the thing to do, but I have never seen anything on that that would suggest that that really matters after you've put two liters or three liters
0: or four liters. Well, that's the other problem. I haven't oil. seen the paper that says how much to put through there if you don't do it that
1: way. Well, you know, it's really interesting. One of the employees who works with us actually who's out here temporarily got a little peroxide in her eye from her contact lens solution or something like that. So she said she went to UCLA two days ago and she said, that's a beautiful emergency department, <laughs> you know, because it's brand new and all in yes, that. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. case She said, oh, they treated me so well. They put this Morgan lens in my eye and then they washed it out with a whole bunch of stuff kind of thing and it's like the fact is is that she probably didn't need any of that there's a big show about it the the damage was done the nanosecond that the stuff went in there she washed it out at home but anyway there's all of this knee-jerk stuff anyway i think that it is important to initiate these washings early on do not delay because well the nurse has to get the visual acuity that's ridiculous yeah But you do need to measure the visual acuity someplace in this fine care. If you don't, I think it's kind of viewed as sloppy care. It is sloppy care. The other thing is if they wear
2: lenses, we always do visual acuity with their lenses on if they brought their glasses. We don't care what their diopter change is. We want to know what their
1: optimal vision can be. That's what we need to know. Right, exactly. Which brings up another little point there about visual acuity. I left my glasses home. And I can't read the frickin' big E on that chart. You know about the pinhole test there kind of thing where you put a pin. Not only that, I've written about it. Oh, really? Yes. It's in Neurologic Emergencies, a symptom-oriented approach. If you've ever done it yourself. All the time. I've wear glasses and I put a hole in the index card. A bunch of holes, yeah. And you look through that little teeny little hole and you basically are looking at the very, very best part of your vision and you have no diffraction no issues right there. And it's like if you break your glasses, you could just walk around with two cards in front of your eyes with a pinhole. Yes, you would just have no peripheral vision. Though, <laughs> that's right. Rick. That's yeah. right. I think
2: well, you, you ought to drive like that. In fact, <laughs> right. I think
1: you do sometimes. You, know, yes. you just hold up these two cards in front of your eyes. You don't need the glasses anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's a miracle. Yeah. Moving on. Gregory, you're going to talk to us about spiders and floaters and curtains well, and, <laughs> and
0: Unfortunately,
2: like something Vegas. we now have to talk about another one of the cases, which I actually had. When a patient comes in to you and says, first of all, understand our limitations. Looking at the eye with the standard ophthalmoscope, even if you dilate that eye, okay, that by a factor of two or three increases what we can see, but we never see The way an ophthalmologist does with a refractive lens a ruby lens that can look up into the corners and the sides i have a case where someone came in said doctor i'm 57 years of age i do have hypertension and by the way i had a whole bunch of things that kind of floated by and now it's not so bad and that happened this morning and now i'm doing okay he said well let me take a look and he did look in the eye and said whatever it is i think it's gone unfortunately the next day the patient detached their retina and now The patient did have care. There was some problems with the repair of the detachment. And now the claim is the doc should have known that this was a symptom of a detaching retina and that he should have sent them to the ophthalmologist that day. Lawsuit took place. And actually, after a long series of things happening, the case was dropped. But it did take place.
1: And it was on exactly the case you've pointed out here, Rick. So the words are floaters? Spider webs, lowering of a curtain. Flashes. Flashes. Flashes of light. And this is generally peripherally. It's not generally centrally right. because that's where these detachments occur or can occur. And this may be the harbinger of a detachment, but the bottom line is this, the biz buzz. As soon as you hear those words, you're on the telephone, and it doesn't matter what you see in the eye.
2: By the way, I did have a squash player professor at the University of Michigan who was hit, was not wearing his protective eye covers. And the squash ball is hard, moves fast, and can nicely fit within inside the orbit of the eye. It was made to fit into it. Your it orbit. made to fit there. <laughs> and of course, he took it. The initial examination we saw was perfectly fine. And the warning was given. And actually, we had him seen by ophthalmology. And he had a hematoma on the inside of the eyeball, which they went in and lasered. Not that it had detached, but they thought that that was going to be the precursor Mm -hmm. of him getting an attachment to that eye. I think all the physics that we learned that all pressure is spread through a fluid medium equally. That's what hydraulic brakes work. You ought to think about with the eye. If you put that much pressure anteriorly, it had to go posteriorly
1: to your retina. All right, moving on. I got something here about local anesthetics and using them early if you think there's a corneal problem. I don't think there's any medical legal issues there. Never seen it. Let me tell you the thing, though, that
2: I think is probably wrong. We've talked a long time about you can't let anybody take anything home. Every doctor I know who's ever had a corneal abrasion took home the medication to give himself another hit or two before the next day. I think we've overdone this and I wouldn't give them a big bottle, but you know that they've got a 0.5 ml bottle of Alcon, which you can send home, you could send home with a patient. It gives them two more hits and you know, you're re-epithelializing that area of your eye. It's painful. One of the most painful things I ever had, and you know, I've had a six vessel bypass and all kind of stuff. It wasn't as bad as when I got hit in the eye and had an abrasion for the first time, which was misery.
0: Yeah, I have recurrent corneal erosion, so I have a big corneal scar, and it breaks down a couple of times yeah. a year, which basically gives me a corneal abrasion, and they hurt like hell. I can tell you what I do: I take the damn stuff herb for a couple of days <laughs> of until <course>. it heals. <laughs> Every doctor does. Although we are talking about risk management,
2: yes, yeah, so, we uh, are talking. Uh, should, about should we that? do that? I don't know. Well, yeah. you know what? If somebody listening would like to do something useful for the profession, don't do another study on CPR. Do this study on a minor, minimal amount of pain medication for the eye to go home, and let's see who has any problems and who does well. Because we've drilled into people, oh, you can't let them take it home. They'll
1: misuse it. They'll abuse it. I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah, there were two theories, I think. One of them was, well, you know, what happens if this person gets a boulder in their eye? They won't notice it. Well, I'll take those chances. Thank you very much. And the other one was... This may inhibit the regrowth of the epithelium, which is, yeah, okay, fine. It decreases the healing by 20% or something like that. I don't care. Right. But from a risk management point of view, I think it is viewed as the standard not to do this for better or for worse.
2: I understand. But there's lots of things that we need to challenge simply because they're getting in the way of good care. These little 0.5 ml bottles, which gives them two more doses before they go to bed that night.
1: I think, could be very useful. Well, that brings up a tangential issue about the idea of patching. You can't put drops on if you've been patched. And some Have you ever seen some of the ways these people get patched? They look like they've been freaking mummified by yeah. the nurse. The nurse they Explain used a- to me the reason for patching. But it tells you which eye was the problem.
0: <laughs> so it must have been that right one there. Well, we yeah. believed that it was the right thing to do and that it was like putting a patch over a wound. It just seemed like the right thing to do. We but thought it, the figure of eight dressing was the
2: right thing to do for clavicle fractures. It was a wonderful idea destroyed by the data. Right.
1: Don't let the facts get in the way kind of thing. But I think one of the important things is there's enough literature that says you are not negligent if you don't patch an abrasion. Right. There's some judgment about, you know, what size abrasion. That's fine. But you are not required to do that. And those of you who have followed up abrasions, we followed them all up ourselves, they think the next day you're taking off that babushka that they had put on their head. And they say, oh, thank God that
0: thing's off, doctor. And most of the time it has not helped them. But in any case... Well, sometimes what I do, because I have recurrent corneal erosions and abrasions, is that I'll put a little patch on and say, does that feel better? Because some people with a little pressure on their makes them feel better. It's good analgesia. And if I say, oh, it feels good, but I'm like, well, wear that if it makes it feel better. And if it doesn't make it feel better, throw the damn thing away. It's
1: like soft cervical collars. Yes. <laughs> and our ER actually had a very sexy, it was a patch that was relatively firm that had a little sponge in the inside of it. Mm-hmm. And you could look Rick, like. don't go any farther. You look like, story, you look like yeah. a pirate when you think they <laughs> had to put that thing <laughs> Hey, lady. And so it
0: was about comfort. Assessing the pupils, Melvis. Yes, well, you've got to know a little bit about things like iritis, which can make that pupil smaller and it stays smaller and sometimes you get an afferent pupillary defect. So you need to look in the pupils. You need to, at least is what our ophthalmologists say, and I will see what Greg says, look at the pupils, document it well, look for the swinging flashlight test, make sure there's not an afferent pupillary defect, that kind of stuff, and write it down. And if there's been any trauma, look for that teardrop-shaped pupil. Say it's round, because if it's not round and you've had a history of trauma, then there's a chance that there's a penetration into that globe. So write all these things down would be good charting and, I assume, good medical malpractice.
2: Well, I can't believe that there's anyone left anymore who's practicing emergency medicine who isn't good with the slit lamp.
0: Oh, geez, we're going
2: to talk about that. We're going to talk about that. Oh, wait a second. I mean, to me, to practice emergency medicine, that is an absolutely necessary instrument because what you can see, if you're skilled with it, there is no iritis really, that doesn't show up on the slit lamp. Slit lamp is a good instrument. By the way, under the slit lamp, you can watch the pupil beautifully. You can look at defects. You can watch it move. You can check a Marcus gun response. And actually, when I have very darkly pigmented patients, it can be harder to look at the pupil. And I think the slit lamp, dark room slit lamp, is the way to go if you really want to
0: pick up subtle disease. So if the pupil's too small, think irritus. If the pupil is too big and a little steamy, think acute angle glaucoma. If it's teardrop shaped, think there's a penetration and you should do the sort of swinging flashlight tests and show that they've got a good normal response to direct and indirect light.
2: You know, we talk about these things all the time. I just don't see them. And I'd be happy if any of the listeners have some large series. But Rick, have you ever seen anybody sued for missing acute angle glaucoma?
1: No. I've I never seen it. However, there are many more subtle things that can cause problems with the eye that are not as obvious. And I think one of the things that is important about pupils is that virtually every disorder that affects the eye's ability to see will result in the pupil being a little bit bigger on that side. We're talking. No, wait a second. It's not a little bit bigger on that side. The Marcus Gunn
2: pupil response says when you shine the light in the bad eye. There's a slight dilatation of both pupils. When you go back to the good eye, they constrict. Pupils are set centrally, and I will be happy to draw up the anatomy for you, but the Marcus Gunn swinging flashlight sign is when the light is shown in the bad eye, the pupils slightly dilate. When it goes to the good eye, now the total quanta of light reaching the midbrain
1: area is greater, and they both constrict. Well, I think that that was obtusely what I was trying to get to, that physiologically when there are some reasons for the eye not to see as well, then there's a certain increase in the amount of light that the eye wants to take in to see that from a teleological point of view.
2: Correct. Whenever you see a clear swinging flashlight sign and no other finding, it is retrobalbar or optic neuritis. Yes, and I think that's an important distinction. Yes, it is, because the doctor sees nothing and the patient sees nothing. The reason it is important to pick that up, and that may be the only finding on your exam, is that these patients probably benefit from bursts of steroids early on. By the way, in any young patient who presents with retrobulbar neuritis, they will carry the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis 80% of the time within the next two years.
1: So from a medical legal point of view, you're not going to get sued because you missed MS no, but I think it can 't be just focusing narrowly on the things that are going to get you into trouble right. with the eye. Extraocular movements, I think this is one of the areas where there is some belief that if you have pain on moving your eyeball around that that tells you something about the eye. Would you agree with that absolutely in fact. I presented a case to the residents at
2: Stanford yesterday of a young woman with a slight proptosis, a little redness of her lids, and somebody thought she had a cellulitis of her lid. The answer is no. She had a change in visual acuity. She had pain with extraocular movement, and she had a slight proptosis. What she had was a retroorbital cellulitis. This was a 14-year-old girl, never, by the way, diagnosed previously with her diabetes primary doc had called her a sinusitis two weeks earlier. What she had was nocardia growing in her sinuses, and interestingly enough, somebody did do a blood panel on her, and she had a 560 glucose. So is this a medical malpractice case that you were involved in? No, it was not. This was actually a case that I'd seen, and I have pictures of her because she has the nice proptosis and the pain on movement, So I use it as a teaching case.
1: Because some people think that you can distinguish periorbital from orbital ichymosis by this distinction of whether they have pain on moving their eye. That, that, that's yeah, not yes, true. Yes, and that is a very dangerous assumption. Absolutely. Because yes, if you have pain when you move your eyeball right or left or up or down, that is a problem. But that does not mean that the pathology is distinguishable from the periorbital versus the orbital. And so there needs to be a low threshold for imaging these people. They get CTs to see if there's anything behind their eyeball that could be
0: causing this problem. Right. Right. Yeah, Maybe we didn't state it explicitly. Yeah, we were taught periorbital in front of the septum. It's in the front part of the eye. It doesn't hurt when you move and you just give them antibiotics and follow them up the next exactly. day exactly, or two days later or a week later. Whereas if it's posterior, it's a four alarm fire and that infection's going to kill her eye. But there was a paper in the abstracts that you did actually a number of years ago that said that don't believe your clinical exam so much. When it all looks like it's periorbital, it probably is. But if you've got any question... Image
2: away, baby. Right. Well, but the other thing is here, understand, do the correct exam. If there's a difference in the vision of the two eyes, okay, I don't even care much what I'm finding. Well, there
1: doesn't have to be. And that's one of the Of course, it doesn't have to be. But The, the case that I saw, which is a real case, is somebody who went to an urgent care clinic And they had a little puffiness of their lids kind of thing, and the antibiotics were given. But it was clear that there was a distinction between what the doctor documented and what the clerk who saw the person when they walked in the door said to the patient, like the clerk said, what the heck happened to you? It was obvious, and yet the doctor wrote this very self-serving note that it's not really any big deal. Turns out to be a orbital cellulitis, which went into a sinusitis. What is what is that sinus back there, Greg? The superior sagittal sinus. No, it was the one that right in the center of your brain. Right, right, that one. Yeah, went into that infection and obstruction of the sinus. And bottom line is, this person had a horrible outcome. Cavernous sinus. He cavernous sinus. Thank you. Yeah. Cavernous, cavernous sinus, sinus thrombosis, thrombosis, which resulted from the failure to diagnose this orbital cellulitis, and the outcome was atrocious. Right. I'm willing
2: to bet, again, being a physical exam guy, proper examination would have shown she didn't have a puffy lid. What she probably had was a mild proptosis, which is pushing her eye forward, and that if he had her follow the finger, she would have had irritation on that. And it's unlikely,
1: I don't know, did his chart reflect that he checked visual acuities in both eyes? I don't think visual acuity was checked, and there was clearly no mention in the notes of pain on eyeball movement. Right. But in any case, they do occur. This had a horrible outcome. The doctors lost. Were you the expert on this case? Well, they settled because it was not going well.
2: Yes. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I will say this. I have never seen that particular case, but as you tell me the case, most of what we do is blocking and tackling, I was taught here are the seven parts of the eye exam. If there's an eye complaint, you just kind of do those
1: and I don't know why you wouldn't. I'm moving on. Actually, one of the things that is noted is in cavernous sinus thrombosis, which is can be a result of any of these facial infections going into the center of your brain to the cavernous sinus, mm-hmm. yeah. you get that sinus in thrombosed and it's infected and the patients are usually really quite sick. But there is this issue about nerves that run near there that go have long tracks in the brain and that there is a nerve that tends to be compromised more so than the others, and it's the lateral rectus, the sixth nerve. sixth
2: cranial nerve yes. is that nerve has the longest intracranial course of
1: any nerve. There you go. So it so. has more opportunities if you compromise it somewhere, so that basically you cannot look laterally, and the right eye can't look laterally, and the left eye can't look laterally. No. What really
2: happens is you most often, starts with a unilateral, and so they cannot bury the pupil of their eye over in the corner. They bring it over, and it won't go. You should have been there yesterday, Rick. We presented all eye cases at Stanford for the residents, and that was one of the cases. Ah. It was an onset of a sixth nerve palsy, and here's kind of the rule as far as I'm concerned. New sixth nerve palsy, 15% of the time it may actually be touching or pushing the nerve. 85% of the time it's a false localizing sign. The patient in that case had a sphenoid ring meningioma. and It was in a relatively young person who, when that was removed, benign tumor, except it can crush your brain. They had it removed and had
0: a return to normal vision and normal eye movements. And I've always assumed that it's more important to ask about diplopia than it is to be tracking their movements you should do both and to document both but the plopia is the more sensitive sign than you looking at their eye and saying i don't know if that's quite tracking right they'll tell you they'll go uh, i can't see yeah properly. but you got to do it in a dark room with a pen and you go
2: to the six cardinal positions of gaze mm-hmm. and by plotting that out you
1: know exactly which nerve is involved but statistically you made the key
0: point i think it's this look for number one six nerve six nerve absolutely Elvis, you've got a little note here that says don't miss blowout fractures. Take seriously any patient with complaints of visual problems after facial trauma. We kind of talked about that. But I think that I don't really care, or at least our ophthalmologists don't really care that you've got a blowout fracture of your eye. Because initially, what do we do when everything else is fine? They say, oh, cinema." And we'll follow them up. Right. Once the edema and everything's gone down, a lot of the time they need no <laughs> correction. I think it is much more important that it is a marker of a lot of force. So you better look at the eyeball extra for what's happening inside the eyeball, not that you've blown out your wall. It's not just the eyeball. If you've been in a
2: car and you have a blowout fracture, there's been a lot of trauma put to the rest of the body. I mean, it's always visually interesting when they come in and you're drawn to that. But as far as I'm concerned, a blowout fracture is... Pretty significant trauma to
1: the head and neck region. Well, we got to take a look. <laughs> my second case, doctor. Here we go. <laughs> Here's my second <laughs> case. He was Mr. With Mr. Smarty Pants. Yeah, yeah. So here is a physician skiing down Mammoth Mountain, mm-hmm. basically, and she falls. And she dislocates her shoulder. And she's taken to the local little clinic there, and they pull the T-sheet for dislocated shoulder and they know her axillary nerve is intact and they do a wonderful job putting back her shoulder. So the focus was on the obvious injury, but they didn't really pay much attention to the fact that she had a little teeny weeny bloody nose. And she also complained a little bit about slight blurred vision, but it was just transient. The diagnosis that they missed was a blowout fracture. And the the fact is, you are right, Mel, that if you basically go to the ophthalmologist early on, you might get away with it. But this was a very subtle blowout fracture. There was a delay in getting to the ophthalmologist. And by the time she ultimately got to the ophthalmologist, she said, this is too scarred down. We really can't do much about this. And she had a permanent problem with her ability to move that eye. So what happened was she had a blowout inferiorly. That's
2: where they are. Where the muscle got entrapped in the sinus. Just a basically. little bit. Just That's a right.
1: little bit. But the doctor was distracted with the obvious injury. you got a dislocated shoulder. And the T-sheet kind of focused on dislocated shoulder. So there is no paper to write about. Oh, by the way, they have this other complaint, which was not adequately evaluated. And there's
2: no sympathy. There's no sympathy out there for don't ever try to defend yourself by saying I took the wrong template out of the sheet. By the way, that's sort of disappearing, and now what we've got is these things that are pre-done histories and physicals on complaints, which was a discussion yesterday with the residents, and I asked, does this come out, does this come out, does this come out? Yeah, one of those was I always asked, you write down P-E-R-R-L-A, you know, with accommodation. And of course, one of the first years said, yeah, no, that's on my thing. I said, Do you actually do that? And he was stopped dead in his tracks. Do what? Dead, yeah, check accommodation. <laughs> then I said, Explain it to me. Tell me what the neural pathways are for that. And he sat there and kind of looked at me like I had six heads. And of course, what he's just admitted to is he's put down something on that record which he, A, number one, doesn't understand, and number two, didn't do.
1: Yes, if you're a Perla person, you're an idiot. Yeah, right. I understand that. You're a certifiable idiot. uh, We've talked about that, but I'll tell (laughs) you what. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, obviously you haven't been listening to this long enough because you're an accident waiting to happen.
0: Right, right. I don't write it down because I can never remember how many A's and E's and stuff.
1: (laughs) So I think one of the keys in this case was – subtle bleeding from the nose kind of thing which was not really paid much attention it stopped everything was okay but that just meant she had head trauma so what you do is you didn't check examine her the head exactly right okay exactly dr lou's on that one by the way yes he did yeah yes he Oopsie. did yeah. that's good well you know a doctor with permanent visual problem kind of thing i don't know it's worth a few bucks that's right All right, let's pick up, you took the sofa granted, Greg, that you obviously are living in some kind of protected little box here. The idea that everybody would use a slit lamp to examine (laughs) an eye complaint, to assume that that is happening in every one of these emergency departments in this country is incorrect. I can tell you that. Well, it may be incorrect. What I'm saying is, it's a very nice instrument. It's relatively
2: cheap over a period of 25 years, and it gives you so much information. Ask an ophthalmologist whether he's going to use the slit lamp or
1: not to look at the eye. I couldn't agree more, and it it really shocks me because I have some very recent experiences with doctors who do not know how to use a slit lamp. They were older. They didn't really learn about it in the residency kind of thing. They didn't necessarily take a residency or it was too much of a hassle to do it. And I agree with you so much that you learn... When you're done with the slit lamp exam, you know the diagnosis. Right, There's nobody exactly. who's leaving there with something that says, well, I'm not exactly quite sure kind of thing. You know the diagnosis. You saw the cells in flare kind of thing. Or you've seen the herpes, all or, that or sort of thing. Or you see the yeah. microhyphema. You see it all kind of thing. Right. Now, I don't want to get into standard of care issues because I don't believe that use of a slit lamp is the standard of care. Although if I were king, I would require it. Every doctor should know how to use a slit lamp because it gives you. No, so every much. doctor who looks at what we look at. It, I don't
2: really care if gynecologists know how to use a slit
1: lamp. It gives either. you so much more confidence once you've done that. And the other thing is. You can do the applination tonometry. You'll know the pressure without right, screwing around with the shiats thing, which went out with the Stone Age kind of Yay. thing. I don't care if they use the Shiats and know how to do it. That's okay with me. We have little boxes, all these rusty little weights kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And the toner pan, nobody knows how to work that thing, and the battery's always dead in that thing. <laughs> no, so no. it's like – but in any case, it's a beautiful skill to have, and it's not that hard. Right. And it's like I can't understand – why you would not use it on oh, every case. And, and it oh,
0: fulfills Greg Henry's rule of it's part of the show. You can put on such a good show oh, with that machine. There's lights and sirens and you're going back and forth. There's blue <laughs>
2: lights. There's green <laughs> lights. So cool. And more than that, you get to put dye in their eye. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful. How can you beat that thing?
1: This is my plea. Learn to use that little sucker. It's kind of like for the old guys who may not use it, I have used it. It's almost like ultrasound. You need to have a few little lessons. Once you've had those lessons kind of thing, you can learn on subsequent cases and get more and more confident. You need to know what cells and flare look like. You need to know what what that keratitis from welding. Right, right. You need to know what that sandpaperly little blast is. But then it's so cool. You know, the guys at the beach. Have you ever seen any of these guys who come from the beach and their eyes are all red and they think had sand in it? Solar keratitis. Exactly. Exactly. You've made the diagnosis. It's not, well, you may have had something in your eye, it went away kind of thing. It's all crap. Yeah. All right. So moving on. And on the Jersey Shore, that could be like an episode. (laughs) Hey, what you got? The other thing is is that I have seen personally cases that come back the next day where there's a foreign body under the lid. It was a very straightforward mm-hmm. foreign body. And I wondered whether that doctor really, really everted that lie or did he just kind of fart around with that little wet Q-tip? I, you need to avert that lid. I've never
2: seen the case, but I know it could happen. I took care of a child one time that had been getting drops from the pediatrician for a week for his iritis or his conjunctivitis. And all I did was invert the lid and there was a cockle burr stuck underneath there that kept lacerating that kid. And the reason I picked it up was put one drop of stain in had mother hold him up, looked at him under the slit lamp for a thirty seconds, and you could see the lines. The ice <laughs> rink sign, yeah,
0: yeah, and just what's ch- it, what's that called? It's called the ice rink sign. Or it looked like the cuts in an ice rink. Yeah, right, exactly. Every time they go like this, right. it goes yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, and when you use your slit
1: lamp and you put the fluorescein in and you see these vertical scratches, it says there may be still something under the lid or there was something under the lid. Right. So you look carefully. You've got your moistened opthetic Q-tip kind of thing and. And, you, and the, I think the parents and everybody thinks right. that's a great show. I'm cleaning the lid, Mom.
2: Yep. And I don't actually like to remove a foreign body because, you know, I'm an industrial area where we had a lot of guys who did grinding on parts in the old days when there were still jobs in Michigan. And I would remove those under the slit lamp. You could see everything. You stayed above Brook's membrane. And if you've got, let's say, the rust ring in there to remove, I just think the slit lamp just
1: makes it. Just as easy as can be. Can you be imagine right. trying to remove a rust ring without a slit lamp? I don't I know.
0: know. That's impossible.
1: Yeah, it is. It's virtually hard to do it with a slit it. lamp. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: So if there's anybody listening to this program who doesn't use a slit lamp, I'm sure you're about to resign as one of the yeah. people you're listening. to us. are going to cancel
1: us. your subscription. Yeah, right. And, and you
2: know what? What you probably ought to cancel is your medical license. No, I,
1: actually, it will change your life It'll in terms your life. of your management of ophthalmologic cases, if you don't know how to use a slip lamp when you learn.
0: And it, right. also just that flipping of the eyelid. If you don't know how to do that, then go on to YouTube or if, there's a whole bunch of places you can learn how to do this. It is incredibly simple. And it, it's That's just use a Q-tip for How four, many it? thousands of those things have you pulled out? And I pull them out before the kid gets the ear. You know, just at home. At home, and it's one of the simplest things you could do. Yeah. Flip the eyelid take it out. And you're thinking you're going to find an elephant because the person says, I swear, it's the size of a planet. And it's a tiny little black thing. And you yeah. take it out and they're like... Oh, you're the greatest person bit. ever.
1: It is so rewarding to do that kind of it's, thing. Here's your problem. And then it's like you, a nose I mean, elbow. Of course, you like always it. show them the Q-tip with that little black thing on there. So there's the problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, doctor. Do you have a private practice? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You've just hit
0: it out of the park. Yeah. Well, um, we talked about the other thing. You the guy, by hit? the
2: way, who keeps Q-tips with a foreign body on it yes. just in case you don't <laughs> find one? Rick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: A good idea. We talked about this thing which I think we should just say again. If there's any evidence, any suggestion on the history or physical exam that there's a potential for intraocular foreign bodies, I think the standard now is to C T scan them. Yeah. I, think, I, don't know what, I, actually, I shouldn't right. say the standard. I think it's a very good idea to <laughs> C T scan them because C T really picks it up well. You have gotta tell the radiologist. This is what I'm looking for, so they make the cuts the right size. But if you don't see it on x-ray and you're still really worried... Frankly, I wouldn't even bother C-T. with it.
1: If you x-ray and it shows up, well, great, you know. But if it doesn't show up, the risks are too high here. The other thing is we mentioned the rust ring on the cornea. Somebody has to get that rust ring out. It doesn't need to be the ER doctor. If they no. don't feel comfortable with that, somebody needs to take it off, send them to somebody. Yeah, and by the way, the
2: second day it comes off easier
1: right. because there's mild
2: edema that comes into the cornea almost lifting that foreign body off,
0: or that rust, which is retained in there, off. A couple more things about corneas. So that rust ring, and the key thing with the rust ring, if you don't know how to take it off, you can have somebody take it off the next day or the day after, but you don't want to miss it, because that can set up an iritis just in itself. and And it can produce permanent staining of the cornea. So you want to get it. You don't necessarily have to do it tonight, but make sure they get followed up. Right. Remember contact lenses. So contact lens wearers that have red eyes can get pseudomonas keratitis. And that's a big deal. So you are got to make sure that you ask, do you wear contact lenses? And you are got to make sure you get the contact lens out. And if they've got a big red eye, particularly a unilateral red eye with a contact lens, you've got to, I think, just treat them for pseudomonas keratitis. You can do your swabs and everything and make sure they get followed up because it's a pretty big deal. And it's quite invasive. And if you're like me, and I wear contact lenses a lot of time. People with contact lenses after they've had them for a while, they're disgusting. They drop them on the floor. They drop them in cow poop. They lick them and they stick them back in their eye. So it's a real disease. I haven't seen, I've got to tell you, though, many cases, true cases of Pseudomonas keratitis, but it's a big deal and you don't want to miss it. See, I'm aware that all these things can happen, but remembering this is risk management
2: monthly, I'm not sure I've ever seen or heard of a lawsuit against an emergency doc. Again, now that we're all skilled with slit lamps, you can usually find the lost contact lens without much problem, and they're grateful for it. But I agree with you that the pseudomonas question is a real one, and that's why as you're selecting the antibiotic ointment or drop of choice, select correctly.
1: Well, the other thing too is it is commonly said that these eye problems should not be patched.
0: Yeah, if if you suspect a bacterial cause, you don't patch it because then the bacteria like to be in the dark and it's nice and warm and they replicate faster and they eat your head alive.
1: Yes, now I don't know (laughs) whether... I'm not sure if
0: that's true. Yeah,
1: it's one of those things where it's the common practice that you're not patch these. And if there's a bad outcome, maybe they said, well, doctor, you patch the eye. Don't you know about this kind of thing? I don't know whether you're going to go to
0: jail for that or not. And we tend to have this routine, to me it hasn't been routine in 15 years, where if you've got a corneal abrasion, a little scratch, that we give these people antibiotics so it doesn't get infected. There's no evidence that that's true. A lot of ophthalmologists will do it because they say, oh, it's not about reducing infection, but the oil emollient that a lot of those antibiotics in just makes people feel better as they're blinking. So that's the reason they give it, although I'm sure in the back of their mind they're hoping it reduces infection. But these rarely, rarely ever get infected. But supposedly they can produce tetanus. There are case reports of people getting tetanus, and the only injury that they've been able to find in these people is a corneal abrasion laceration. That's a very good point, Melvis,
1: that they have been associated with it. it. You wouldn't think it is a tetanus-prone wound. For a tetanus-prone wound, you've got to get these spores down into anaerobic kind of deep punctures. Rick, Rick we
2: can't speak logically logic to melvis about tetanus i think there are about 50 cases reported the united states a year 25 of them are at your hospital yep yep and well this is not about risk management this is about medicine (laughs) this is about medicine yeah medicine
1: we've gone down the, the wrong path
2: and by the way we do on anything around the eye corneal abrasions anything like that we do ask the question about their tetanus immunization, yeah. but what I'm aware of is it is a select group of people who get tetanus. Half of them are in newborns or the very young, and the other 25 snuck into the country. Right? Well, let's yeah. talk
1: about another thing that may be viewed as common practice, and maybe you should do it, and maybe there are some risk management implications. The idea of a next-day follow-up. Do you guys do that for your abrasions or see them in a day or two or kind of thing, or make
0: sure they get seen sometime in the short-term future? Do you want them to know the truth? Yeah, I do. You can't handle the truth. I was always taught that it's a good idea to have these checked the next day, so we do it as a routine. And I used to check them all myself the next day when I was on. There's never a problem. So I say, well, I'm going to tell you you should follow up tomorrow. But if your eye feels completely fine, and it usually does in 24 hours, I wouldn't come back. That's you. exactly know, right. <laughs> In all fairness... The healthcare
2: system's got plenty of people in it. There's a lot of people overworked. I'm the biggest advocate of people coming back, but come back if you've got a reason, because tomorrow they wake up, over 12 hours they've re-epithelialized. If they've got pain, I want to see them. If there's change in vision, I want to see them. If both those are normal, I have never, in 36 years of doing this, ever seen somebody who had a bad corneal abrasion
1: who didn't have pain. Didn't see it the purpose of my asking was to see whether this was the standard of care. Well, apparently it isn't because I do an identical thing. I don't want to have this person come back for a nothing visit when the eye is perfectly normal. I generally say, this is going to last a couple of days. I expect that you'll be feeling somewhat better tomorrow and should be gone in, in two days. And if it isn't, or if it's getting worse, please come back here immediately. We were a
2: thousand feet. The hospital I was at was chief at for 23 years. A thousand feet from a major Ford Motor Company plant that did grinding. We saw guys every day with foreign bodies in the eye that, you know, because they wouldn't wear their safety glasses or whatever it was. And so if we'd actually said, everybody come back the next day. I mean, the Ford Motor Company would have gone crazy. I mean, it'd
1: come back if you've got a problem. Well, GM went bankrupt over that. It was all about the corneal abrasion <laughs> revisits. <laughs> it, it
0: may have been. It may have been. God. So we should talk a little bit about lacerations, too. So lacerations around the eyeball scare me to death. I will sew up your laceration almost in any other part of your body. But around the eyeball, I worry. And I worry for a couple of reasons. One, if it's a lid margin, if you don't get that lid margin right back perfectly then they're always going to look funny because we're used to looking at people's eyes and it can produce pain and it's just lid margin got to have it perfectly aligned with the suture that i can't see anymore well you're right it's six zero nylon
2: suture something that they're going to use but the other thing is there are only two things that your eye tracks to on the face the upper lip line which is people always have problems with that if it's not put together right and you're right if you look at the margins on the eyes People track right to it. As far as I'm concerned, if you've actually gone into the plate or you've nicked that margin, I think it's worthwhile talking to plastics about that. And I give patients the option. But I agree with you, Mel. I'll put stitches anywhere, and I don't mind doing this, that, and another thing. But around the eye, it is another question.
0: Yeah, and obviously, you've got to worry about that canalicular system, medial to the puncta. But actually, I say anywhere near the puncta, I start to freak out. Because again, if you miss the more serious, deeper injury, and now your tears don't drain properly, and you have a chronically drippy eye, I would sue you for $20 million. Well, <laughs> we did have that
2: case at my hospital, and it did not turn into a lawsuit. But if you believe that the puncta, and then, the, of course, the obviously the canal going down into your nose... If that's involved, no way in hell I would be putting that together. They've got to pass a small wire down in that, bring it up. Basically, what they do Mm -hmm. is they stent it until that's healed up. Because if you don't, you're right, the chronically weepy eye would be a disability to a lot of people, and they don't like it.
1: Yeah, I think the key for emergency physicians is to know the potential consequences of messing around with particularly the canaliculi, or whatever that thing's called, and the lid margins, and so you're basically in dangerous territory with the canaliculi, and you're in cosmetic territory with the lid margin, although I really believe that depending on where you work and the circumstances, if you're in the middle of Alaska, I'm going to put a stitch in that lid margin because there's nobody else
0: around kind of thing. Moving on. Should we talk about temporal arteritis? Think Only so. if you want to talk about one of my other cases.
1: No, <laughs> boy. Well, I think there is a theme here in terms of temporal arteritis that emergency physicians should be aware of. People talk about, well, we need to do a temporal artery biopsy. How the heck do you, bu- how do you biopsy an artery? Time out. Doesn't, don't you bleed if you biopsy an artery? <laughs> time out. The large
2: cells that you see when they actually do the biopsy are seen there, whether you've treated them with steroids or not. Here's the problem, Rick. People show up with headache all the time, and we've stopped teaching how to examine. I don't want to be a broken record here, but you know you what? sound like an old fart. <laughs> I am an old fart. <laughs> and damn it, when they show up and they've got a head pain, why don't you do something wild, like actually touch the part that hurts? I mean, I've picked up people who had tooth abscesses. I've picked up people of this and that, and we have this case gentleman comes in, 72 years of age, tenderness, headache, more than that, first-time headaches in a 72-year-old, eh, something wrong. It's just wrong. I don't care what you want to call it. He's got something real. And, of course, if somebody gets a CT scan, it's what? Normal. Oh, of course. he's fine. Uh, does anybody actually touch anything on his head? We don't know that, because when you look at the chart, there's no evidence. And the nurse's note says, right side of head near eyebrow that's what it says he's got a sudden headache by the way he had no visual problem at that time he did two days later and now he's blind in that eye and you don't think the family wasn't unhappy about that they were livid
0: yeah we went to the yard and they didn't do nothing right well the important thing is we're trying to stop them from losing their vision So if they've already got lost vision it doesn't take a brain surgeon to work out There's something wrong So the red flags The kind of things we're looking for is Do they have on history Things like jaw claudication And proximal myopathy And these things that can go with this disorder Does it hurt over the artery when you roll it? Does it hurt right there? Sometimes if you're lucky It's even warm And it's even a little bit red But that's not my experience I haven't diagnosed a lot of these But my experience is mostly It's just kind of tender over there And they've got these other symptoms That there's something None the of us thing. diagnose a lot of these but the other thing is
2: it's very rare when they come in and say it hurts right here particularly when I touch it you know what pay attention to that the other thing is I've never seen this in a person under maybe it happens in people under 60 or so but these tend to be older people and this particular patient had no history
1: of headache and now he comes in and says this hurts Well, Gregory, the paper said failure to diagnose is the most common Mm -hmm. cause of a malpractice suit. If you're not aware of this entity, if you've heard about it but never seen it, you will miss this diagnosis. And it's not a big deal if there wasn't these consequences in that with this disorder, the blindness can come at any time, at any time. So the idea is, well, at the time I saw him, he didn't have any problem with the vision. They had a headache. This thing was a little tender. They're supposed to be on started on steroids. My understanding is immediately, immediately, because there is not a sliding <laughs> deterioration. It could be sudden. So the idea here is, and I think that there is some element of liability. Doc, did you start them on steroids? And no, I did, and I told them to
0: go to their family doctor for follow up in three days. And next thing you know, Greg made the other important point about diagnosis. Usually, you know, you get an ESR, and usually, classically, it's really incredibly high. It's over a hundred, but it doesn't have to be. You can start them on the steroids today. It doesn't affect the biopsy results for days. It doesn't affect the so biopsy So just start them today and let them work it out. The other thing is you don't
2: know quite who to call on this. I mean, basically, I send them to the neurologist to follow this. An ophthalmologist really doesn't need to look at this kind of case. It's not what they do. But once you've got the big picture here, it's very simple. Even if you don't know about the disease, what you know is I've got point tenderness on the head. That means you examine the patient.
1: Yes, that, but That's the, what you need to do. Here's the issue. Yes, exactly. Most people will not even know they have point tenderness because you haven't thought of the diagnosis. If you haven't thought of the diagnosis, you haven't felt the temporal artery. It's a whole spiral here of out of sight, out of mind. I didn't even think to do it. I missed it. Sorry. Yeah. The eye cannot see what the mind does not
0: know. Something like that. So, <laughs> no. Headache, old person. It's on the one of the seven bad causes of headache. Yeah. Feel, look, ask. Tenderness, jewel claudication this kind of stuff
1: all righty that's enough of this clinical medicine now we've gone way too much into medicine we don't want to talk about any more medicine no 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 why don't we talk about something more fun
2: like wine of the month again For all of you listening, I'm tired of being insulted when I go to meetings, (laughs) conventions, whatever it is, bitching about the wine of the month. You know, drink it. Don't drink it. Give me a break. But I'm going to do something now, and I don't want either of you guys giving me trouble. I'm going to recommend a Michigan wine Mm -hmm. and a Michigan winery. Mm -hmm. Now, I know coming from California, it's going to bother you, too, but... Michigan has a growing area very much like that of Upper Germany, so our whites are relatively decent. I wouldn't drink the reds from Michigan, but the whites are very good, and there's a place called the Bowers Harbors Vineyard up near Traverse City, Michigan, and what I'm recommending is the Blanc de Blanc 2008. This goes at about 16 bucks a bottle, and it is terrific. They also do a medium-dry Riesling, which is the 2009s I have sampled. And, again, these are out at about 10 to 11 bucks a
1: bottle, and I think you will find that they are very, very good. Thank you, Gregory. Appreciate that. I should note that Jim Lorenzano said he liked your May selection of a Mirazoo. Mirazoo. Yes, right. God, California. love you, Jim. God, I'm, somebody liked what I picked. Pinot Wall. The Pinot Wall. Yes. Anyway, so there's somebody there's two people who like it, you and Jim. Yeah. All right, that's (laughs) it for August. Risk Management Monthly is coming to you. We'll talk to you guys next month. Bye for now. Bye. Bye bye.